Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at And what's crazy is, Dwayne and I were joking about this a couple days ago, uh, we almost didn't go through the book of Ecclesiastes. For some reason, we were kind of sitting there last year and we were like, should we go through this? Like, is it really going to hit home with our people? Um, and so thankfully, the Holy Spirit reigned there and brought us to this book. And so it's been really cool just to see God work through and hear some of the stories from our community groups, from people coming to services, um, as well as just people popping in and out saying, like, I, I needed this passage today, or I needed this reminder of what um, life is about and the reality that we take a look at through Solomon's perspective. So um, we're not going to be in Ecclesiastes today. We're going to be in the book of Acts. I'm just kidding. Uh, just kidding. I know we walked through Acts for like three years. I get it. Um, we don't ever want to go back to that. Um, no, we will be in Ecclesiastes chapter three today. We're going to be continuing the chapter that we saw last week um, in regards to the seasons and the providence and sovereignty of God. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Ecclesiastes chapter three. We're going to be in verse 16 through the end of the chapter this morning. Um, if you don't have your Bibles, uh, they, I don't see any next to you. Okay, so if you want a Bible, they are in the back. We can grab some for you. If not, they're going to be on the screen. If you have it on your phones or a tablet or iPad, whatnot, you can follow along. Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, starting in verse 16. While you're getting there, um, I want to set up today's sermon in two ways. The first one is this. Um, what we are about to walk into um, and what we will be talking about continuing next week uh, is sort of a hot topic issue today. You'll see in Solomon's words this morning that we are going to be talking about um, the topic of injustice and oppression. And these tend to be hot topic issues um, because we can have sides in which we tend to land. Um, and so what I want to do is just kind of lay before you that that's not where we are trying to come from as a church. And I'll give you an example, right? Um, you might have heard, and if you haven't, uh, you will hear at some point continuing in this church that we are vehemently against abortion, right? We're against the murder of the unborn, and we are wanting to advocate for their lives, right? So we will speak of... Um, the image of God and how we can, it's all good, man, um, um, how we can protect life in the womb, right? And oftentimes, this can be a topic we go for, and then the other side is we don't want to push for uh, advocating for life and oppression in uh, the, the rule of, I'm just going to say, racism, Right? When it comes to ethnicities or people being oppressed based on their color of skin or where they grew up or their socioeconomic status. Because if you fight for one, some reason you can't fight for the other. And so what I want to do this morning is I'm not trying to say we're going to land somewhere on either side. What I'm saying is because of the fact that the Bible teaches that every human being is made in the image of God, we're going to land on both sides. We're going to fight for both oppressed. We're going to fight for the injustices of those who can't speak for themselves. Because this is what the Bible teaches us. 
that every human being made in the image of God has value and purpose and dignity. And therefore, we will fight for that because this is what the Bible calls us to do as believers. Micah 6.8 is clear that we are to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with the Lord. And so I want to lay that before you as we walk into a topic like this, because you might hear something that will wrestle or you have tension with and you have to wrestle with, and I pray that you press into that. If there is tension that you press into that, you go to the Word of God, you ask the Spirit to reveal what that tension is, and if you need to set up a coffee date with me, let's do it, we'll talk. But I wanna lay that before you and ask for humility on your end that I'm not trying to push any type of political agenda or regime or anything like that, but I'm coming to you from the word of God. And if you have an issue with that, then your issue is with what God is saying, okay? So the second thing I wanna do is I want to remember what was taught last week because it's going to be important where we're going this morning. So if you weren't here, a little recap is that, that Dwayne talked about last week was um, the sovereignty of God has placed things and, and created things and set things in motion that cannot be undone, right? That God has seasons and that he controls all the seasons, that he is sovereign over all. And yet in that sovereignty, he is making all things beautiful. And so therefore, if this is true, we should enjoy our present time. That's what Solomon ended last week's passage with. We should enjoy the present. If you remember the three things that Dwayne specifically talked about early on is that from Isaiah 46, we saw that God governs all things. He is not a deistic God that just sets his watch on creation and lets it roam on its own. He's not removed from his creation, but as Psalm 139 shows us, he is intricately involved in the design of his people, as well as sustaining creation. We have a God who cares, who enters in, who draws near. But he is also a God that we see in Acts 17 who cannot be manipulated. He is not a God who needs anything and that we can't bring something to him as if he is a genie that he would give it back to us. He is a sovereign God who has a plan as verse 11 from last week showed us, a plan to make everything beautiful in its time. And we see that in the New Testament. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We can trust in this promise. So we as believers should take comfort in that whatever God does endures forever. I actually love the song that we sang in Christ Alone, because it says, no power of man, no, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. That, that's Ecclesiastes, right? No power of hell, no scheme of man. You know why that's true? It's because whatever God has purposed in saving you will endure forever. And to think about that even on a personal level, no scheme of man, that means your own schemes will not pluck you from his hand in saving you and bringing you and making you into the image of Christ. So we can have comfort and we can have peace knowing that God is making things beautiful. And the reason I wanted to bring this to your attention is not to show you that I was listening to Dwayne's sermon. I, I try to most of the time. I am just like you. Come in here tired, 
worrying about things that are going on. I wanted to help you see, as well as remember, the beautiful truths that we learned last week, but also to set you up with a question that Solomon implies in his perception of things under the sun this morning. So, before we jump in, let's go to the word in uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll jump into the word as we see what he has to teach us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you that you show us the importance of life, the importance of every single individual around us. Thank you that you show us more of yourself through your word and that we have an opportunity to learn more of who you are. Let it challenge us this morning. Let us grow more into the likeness of Christ. Lord, let us learn and then take what we've learned into every sphere of life that we are a part of. Because you've called us there. You've placed us there as people who have been called out of the darkness into the marvelous light. Lord, you call us to take that marvelous light back into the dark, dark places. And so give us courage. Give us boldness to do this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So starting in verse 16, Solomon writes this. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, and the spirit of the beast goes downward into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So two things I want us to see from Solomon's test under the sun. And then I want us to also see his solution. The two things that are inescapable that Solomon sees is injustice and death. Injustice and death. From his perspective under the sun, these two things are inescapable. And if you remember that phrase, under the sun, means without an eternal perspective, without any type of reality of God, what he sees in the here and now, the two things that are inescapable is injustice and death. So we're going to take a look at that. But I want you guys to see that Solomon, in this passage specifically, parallels Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Specifically Genesis 3 and the effects of the fall. Because the effects of the fall that we see, and Julia even talked about it this morning, is that there is a fractured relationship between God and man, but there is also fractured relationships between man and man, and that leads to injustice. That leads to oppression. That leads to power being abused. 
And then the fracture between God and man leads to death. And we'll talk about that this morning. So going back to verse 16, we see that Solomon perceives under the sun that there is injustice. Solomon looks around, and where there is supposed to be righteousness, there is unrighteousness. Where there is supposed to be justice, there is injustice. There is wickedness. There are people who are abusing their power. People who are designed to protect take advantage of the weak and those who they are supposed to protect. Solomon sees that there are officials, there are judges, there are court systems that are putting innocent people in jail. And he sees this injustice and he cries out. And to be honest with you, as you read this passage, you should say, or you should understand that today is no different than the day of Solomon. We still have abuse and power. We still have oppression. We still have injustice and wickedness that is happening. And it should sober us. One of my favorite movies growing up, and I would even say this is my favorite movie of all time, is the movie Remember the Titans. If you guys have not seen it, I'm going to give some spoilers. It's like 30 years old, so... I'm not going to apologize. But the movie The Remember the Titans is about a town, a city, who is walking through the injustice of racism, right? They are desegregating schools, and in this movie, they bring together a predominantly white and predominantly black school and say, you have to integrate, and you've got to work this thing out. And so we find that in this story, Herman Boone, the head football coach of the black school, and Bill Yost, the head coach of the white football team, they have to come together. They've got to figure out how to help their children or help their athletes see that they need to be for one another despite the color of their skin. And two of my favorite parts of the movie that stand out are in camp as well as during the season. So they have to go to camp. And Herman Boone, the coach, is like, we're, we're going to see that we need to be for, one each other, be for each other in order to win. And so there's this scene within the camp that happens where Julius Campbell and Gary Bertier are at a water fountain. And they're talking about how neither of them are playing for each other. And Gary Bertier is like, man, you're just, you're wasting your time, you're wasting your talent, you're not playing for anybody but yourself. And what he's trying to say is, you're not playing for my white brothers. And Julius Campbell comes back and says, what are you talking about? You're only playing for yourself as well because you don't, as a captain, call out your white brothers who aren't playing for my black brothers. And the line is, you're this, this guy's not blocking for Rev or for Plug Campbell, and you know it. And so Julius says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get mine. I'm going to focus on myself and my brothers. And Gary responds and says, that's the worst attitude you can have. Does anybody know what the line is next? Attitude reflects leadership, Captain. It's a great line. I love it. Because what Julius is saying is that your attitude is leading your white brothers to not see 
my black brothers as teammates, as people that I need to play for. And so the next scene in practice, you see Gary step up and call one of his brothers out for not blocking. And you start to see the team finally come together. And as they come back from camp, they're playing for each other. And the town starts to realize and starts to see this change and starts to fight against this injustice. And the second scene that I love is uh, Herman Boone, the coach, is watching film with his daughter and one of the white daughters from the school. And a brick flies through his window. And everybody panics, and they rush to protect. And the very next day, you see Herman Boone doing a press conference saying, anybody that has a problem with me, you can bring this brick to my front door. And so after the press conference is over, Coach Yost comes to him and says, why do you have to be so arrogant? This is what causes people to hate you. And Coach Boone says, you think my arrogance is what leads people to throw a brick through my window? And Coach Yost says, well, if it's going to bring harm to my family, you need to do something about it. And Coach Boone comes back and says, now you get a piece of what my life looks like, Coach Yost. And it's a sober reminding to him that his life, because of injustice and hatred towards his skin color, leads to violence that's coming up against him. It's not his arrogance, it's not his attitude towards football, but it's the fact that he is black, and people hate that. And the reason I love this movie is because at the end, there is a dramatic finish. This team and this town comes together, and they win the state championship on a backside Georgia reverse. P runs down the line. And the movie ends with this team and this town coming to a funeral, black and white, hand in hand, to celebrate the life of Gary Bertier. But what this movie represents is the sad, horrific history of the United States and racism. The injustice and the oppression of people because of the color of their skin. History is filled with what Solomon talks about here, where justice is supposed to be injustice rules, where oppression, or I'm sorry, where protection is supposed to be oppression reigns, and there is wickedness. History is filled with this, not just in our own country. You find this in World War II with the Holocaust. You find today that there's prostitution in the sex slave trade. You see abuse. There's age discrimination, there is gender discrimination, there is social discrimination. It is still present. And Solomon brings this forth and says, this is one of the things that I see under the sun that is inescapable in the human life. Where justice should be, there is injustice, and where righteousness should reign, there is wickedness. Now, here's why I wanted to recap what we talked about last week and specifically bring to mind the sovereignty of God. Because the question that is often asked, and I think in the right context it is okay to ask this, but is if, if God is so sovereign, why does this injustice happen? Why doesn't God judge now? 
or put it like this. If God governs events in their perpetual cycle, why are the wicked allowed to deal unrighteously where justice should be? My response to this is I I think that this is an appropriate question to ask, but we have to be careful. We have to be careful not to demand an answer that fits our expectation of God. We often desire a world where justice is quickly dispensed on the injustice. We watch TV shows that often satisfy these longings and desires of justice so we become accustomed to oppression being squelched quickly because of the fantasy world of TV justice. But while this might satisfy our human longings, this is oftentimes not how God operates within oppression and justice. So we have to be careful not to demand that God work based on our expectations of what justice is supposed to look like. And two cautions that I'll give this morning when we ask this question or when we have this desire for justice to be filled. I'll put it like this. Hopefully this will make it a little bit lighter, although this is a serious topic. If we are longing for justice immediately, when somebody does something wrong, eventually that will also turn to us, right? We've got to recognize that. We would love, I would love, this happened to me this week. I was in Carmel driving, um, I don't know where Dwayne and I were driving, but um, I'm driving down range line and it merges um, at one point driving south. I believe it's 116th, maybe it's 126th, but anyways, I merge, and I'm fully in front of a van. I have my blinker on for about a half a mile. This guy should see that I'm coming into this lane. I drive a truck, so it's not like I'm this small car that just kind of all of a sudden gets in his way, right? He should see this. The next thing I hear is this guy honking and flicking me off because apparently to him, I cut him off. I thought I was back in Florida. I'm like, what is this? <laughs> and so, I mean, I, me and Dwayne were like, man, I would love for a cop to pull up right behind this person because they are being aggressive towards me and pull them over because they're flicking me off and yelling at me even though I followed the rules of the road. I wanted immediate justice for that situation, Right? Or if somebody else cuts us off, sometimes we can think, man, I hope they get a flat tire a mile down the road. I hope they get what they deserve for doing me harm. But again, when we think like that, we often don't put ourselves in the narrative, right? We don't think about what we can do that then would also bring that swift justice, And so what does that reveal about how we view ourselves and our own sin and our own injustices that we can bring to others? I will say this, I I think there is a level of humility that injustice should also bring into our lives when we think about how God handles or steps into oppression or injustices or wickedness. The second thing I want to caution us is to demand an answer or question God 
in an arrogance begins to reveal this truth, that you would be a better judge than God himself. By asking a question in arrogance that, God, why wouldn't you judge now? Or why wouldn't you do this? Can reveal that you think you would do a better job of judging. And so I want to caution us. I'm not saying that we don't ask these questions. The Bible doesn't even tell us not to ask these questions. But the Bible does speak to our heart and how we can allow arrogance and sin to come up and even try to put ourselves in the place of God. So I would caution this. But Solomon's response brings us hope. Even in the midst of his framework, without a reality of God, he still sees that justice will come. There will be a day when wickedness and righteousness will be judged. He says this, In my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter, matter and for every work. God will judge is what he says. There is a time for every matter, for every work. Solomon says, men and women who abuse their power and wickedness will have their day and it is now. But eventually God will have his day and judge them for good. Now you... You guys might think in light of this past sermon when we talked about seasons and we talked about God's sovereignty and we talked about the topic of time and how everything has its own place and its own time and think, why would Solomon move to injustice? Why would that be his next thought? But the point that we find in this passage is that humans on earth what Solomon perceived is that humans on earth experience suffering at the hands of individuals. And since God is in control of all things and everything is in his timing, he must have a time, he must have a time set to make things right. Knowing that every injustice will be made right Specifically made right by God himself, the God of the universe, the God who Solomon talks about controls all things in the beginning of Ecclesiastes 3, should provide us hope. The God of the universe cares about injustice. And I'll get to this a little bit later on, but I want to make this clear. Because God cares about injustice, we as believers in Christ should also care. And here's why we have hope. Because verse 17 tells us that oppression and injustice is not the final word. It is not the final word. Solomon even goes on to say that death is not the final word. I caution to say this, but I, this was really on my heart uh, a couple months ago when this happened. So people make jokes and have memes about Jeffrey Epstein, right? Whether you believe he killed himself or not, I don't care. But what I saw in response to his death 
was women and men who were hurt. And they were hurting because they thought his death was the easy way out. And as Solomon would perceive, if there is no reality, if there is no God that judges the wicked and the unrighteous, death is the easy way out for him. Because he doesn't have to stand in front of a holy God. But as believers in Christ, the hope that we can have is that this life is not the final word. That God has the final word on unrighteousness and wickedness. And it is even worse for him that he would stand in front of a holy God with that wickedness. Rachel Denhollander, if you're not familiar with her, she was a part of the U.S. gymnastics team that was abused sexually by Larry Nasser. But she was also part of the team who led to bring him to his convictions in front of the court. She has a book called What is a Girl Worth? And she writes this about injustice and oppression not being the final word. She says, evil and abuse aren't capable of creating or ultimately defining reality. That's only God's prerogative. However, evil and violence can pervert, distort, and destroy. They are parasitic on the original good of God's creation. In this way, evil serves as the backdrop on the stage where God's redemption shines with even greater brilliance and pronounced drama. What evil uses to destroy, God uses to expose, excise, and then heal. Only God has the final word. And he says through Solomon that he will judge the wicked and the unrighteous. So do you guys who have felt the weight of oppression or injustice or abuse, I am not naive to think that people in this room don't know somebody or have walked through it themselves. What I want to say to you is this. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you have walked through this. I'm sorry that you have been put in a position where power was supposed to protect and that was broken because of sin. This is not how God intended this world to be. If I can offer you hope, it's from this book here. Psalm 37, 18 says this, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. We just read in verse 17, God will judge evil once and for all. Revelation 21 reminds us that one day all things will be made new and pain and trials and abuse will no longer be there. Hebrews 4 reminds you that you have a sympathetic high priest that you can draw near to and find help in your time of need. Rachel Den Hollander says this, no one has the power to change what God has done. And he says, you're worth everything, even his son. Worth all the pain, worth great sacrifice, worth leaving heaven, and worth giving his life. This is what God says to you through his word. That he delights in you. And that one day he will come back and judge the wicked 
in the unrighteous. I hope that you find hope in that today. Even a small piece of hope and joy that this life is not the final word. The second thing that Solomon perceives that's inescapable to the human life is death. Go with me back to verse 18. He says this, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast are the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast for all is vanity. All go to one place, and all are from dust, and to dust all return. Solomon says that death is the great equalizer. And to be honest with you, I feel like as we've walked through Ecclesiastes, death is a reoccurring thing that Solomon continues to point back to, right? Every week, it feels like we're talking about death. But what's interesting about the book of Ecclesiastes and the theme that runs through it is death. That's the biggest theme that continues to reoccur whether it is phrases like this, to dust we are and to dust we will return, or we're from and to dust we'll return, or man's going down. Solomon continues to point back to death. And one of the things I, I think that he does that for is to show that death brings equal reign to everyone, which means that everyone is on the same page if there is no God. If there is no God, if there's no eternal perspective, we are no greater than those around us that just die. And if there is no God, man stands equal with beasts. But here's the other thing that connects with what, the, what we just read, specifically about injustice and wickedness. If there is no God and man stands equal to beasts, all things are permissible, including oppression, including Injustice. Egotism reigns. The highest good is the love of self. This is the reality that Solomon is getting at. This is the perspective that he's trying to help us see that without a reality of God, anything goes. But as anything goes, death comes to all. And I mentioned earlier that this passage specifically parallels Genesis 1, 2, and 3. You can hear that in his verbiage. He talks about life. He talks about breath. He talks about death. He talks about dust, animals, beasts. All of these Solomon is trying to use in such a way that makes you think about the creation and the fall. Because when we look at the creation and the fall, then we begin to see where mankind went wrong. Where the fracture of relationship between God and man, as well as man and man, happened. Man and woman happened. So what I want to do, if Solomon is trying to get us to think about Genesis 1, 2, and 3, I want to go there. 
Now we're gonna, not going to read the creation and fall story, but I'll give you an overview of what happened. God, in his infinite wisdom, created all things. And he created all things good. And at the end of creation, we see that he makes Adam and Eve, man and woman. He gives them life, value, dignity, and then gives them a command to go and be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. So they are to serve together, helping one another as they fulfill the great commandment to have dominion over the earth. But then in chapter 3, we see a serpent or Satan come into the garden and ask a question. If you eat of this tree that God had commanded you not to eat of, which we see in Genesis 2, verse 17, will you really die or will you become like God? And we see that in this conversation, eventually Adam and Eve take of this fruit and they rebel against God. And they believe the lie that Satan told them that they wouldn't die and that they would be like God. So the first thing I want to say in this, just a, a quick view of Satan's lie of they wouldn't die, this is the first great doctrine denied in Scripture. It's the doctrine of judgment. If Satan can get us to believe that judgment won't happen, then there won't be any consequences. And the second lie that we see is that Adam and Eve would be like God. And in a sense, they are because they understand good and evil, but then they're truly not. Because the Hebrew tells us that to know good and evil like God is to be able to pronounce what's good and evil. And Adam and Eve cannot do that. Only God can do that. So in this rebellion, we find death. We, we find fractured relationships. And this is the backdrop in which Solomon writes Ecclesiastes 3, specifically 18 through 22. And so we find this death in Genesis 3 that comes to Adam and Eve. Now we can ask what kind of death happened because when they ate the apple or the fruit, whatever it might have been, they didn't fall dead there. So in God's grace, he didn't show them wrath. But Augustine, or Augustine, however you'd like to say his name, asks this question and answers it for us. If we are ever asked what kind of death happens in Genesis 3, we must answer spiritual, bodily, and eternally. It was all that happened to us. See, God shows us this in Genesis 3 as well as throughout the Bible, the storyline of Scripture. That not only does the first death happen, that our soul is separated and we are fractured in our relationship with the Lord and that when we die, our soul dies as well because we are separated from him. But as Solomon talks about and reiterates from Genesis 3.19, our body also dies and goes to dust. And then ultimately, without a savior or someone to step in to reconcile us to God, that third death comes and we are eternally separated from the Lord. 
So you cannot cut yourself off from God without consequences. And the consequence of rebellion is death that came through sin. And here's the framework that Solomon is trying to get us to think about when we read this passage. That without an eternal perspective, man's life just ends in death because we are now separated from God. This is the consequence of our rebellion. Our best life is here if there is no God. But let's look at Solomon's solution for this. We find it in verse 21 and verse 22. He writes, Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes downward into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So here is a solution. We can't know. When he looks at the world without a framework of God or an internal perspective, we don't know what's going to happen after life, is what he says. And since we can't know, we might as well just rejoice and enjoy what we have now. You see, most of us actually still behave like this. We think that we have an endless time and we close our eyes to death because we don't know what's going to happen in the afterlife and so we might as well just enjoy things now. But God wants us to face the facts and he shows us this through Solomon's words. And I would even extend this to us as Christians in our life that we live for Christ. There's an underlying idea that there is plenty of time tomorrow. And what we do now, while important, can often be put off. I can talk to that friend tomorrow about the gospel. I can revisit them in this conversation. And those are good and right, and I think that we do need to have a healthy perspective of relationships, as Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians, where we share life in the gospel with people. But I also think that we need to have an urgency that has its anchor in the fact that we do not know when death is coming, and we don't know where someone lies eternally. And so we should have that weight when it comes to the Christian service that we give to the Lord. Now I want you also to look at Solomon's solution in verse 22 when he talks about the lot or the portion that we receive, that we are supposed to enjoy. It's a sense of limitation of life. Like an inherited plot of land that's supposed to be worked but ultimately enjoyed because it's ours. It's a part of your heritage. It's been given to you. So here you go. Work on it. Enjoy it. Rejoice in it. Now, some of us, we may have different lots. Our lot might be a small family or a big neighborhood or a medium-sized job. And Solomon says, without an eternal perspective, just enjoy it. 
Rejoice in it because this is your life. There's nothing better is what he says. So enjoy the fruit of your labor. Enjoy the food and the drink and the friends. Enjoy your riches and your power and authority. Put them to good use for the sake of your family, your friends, and for your fellow man. This is Solomon's solution. If I take a look at life, he says, I see two things. I see injustice that cannot be changed and has not been changed, and throughout time it continues to appear. People abuse power and oppress people. And so since this is just something that happens, and because death comes to all, what I need to do is just enjoy life. This is, this is what he perceives about the life of man. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of that solution, I find that hopeless, right? I find that hopeless because there's no satisfaction in that. If all I'm to do is eat, drink, and die, or be merry because tomorrow I'll die, then I have no hope. I'm never going to be satisfied with this life. And enjoying it, I may enjoy it for a moment, but I'm going to think about it eventually being gone. And the fact that I will never be able to come back and look at it again. And Solomon says, if all of this doesn't matter, and you can't change anything, then just enjoy it. But this is not what the gospel says. Right? We need to read the book of Ecclesiastes with what Solomon says and then start looking towards the cross. Jesus reminds us through his road to Emmaus as he's talking to the disciples that everything in the Old Testament is about him, including Ecclesiastes. So we have to ask the question, how is this pointing to Christ? And if what Solomon says about life is hopeless, then what brings us hope is the cross. As the old hymn says, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And so we need to look towards the cross. But we also need to look towards the resurrection. And I want to break both of those down for us this morning and show us how they combat this idea of injustice and death. You see, the cross is the ultimate injustice. It's the ultimate injustice because Jesus, who lived a life and did not sin, went to the cross for people who deserved it. He lived the perfect life in order for those who would believe in him to receive his righteousness. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 would say, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might have the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 3.18 reminds us, for Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. See, this is our biggest need, that we be reconciled back to God because of the death 
that we have received through sin. Because of our willful, chosen rebellion, we are separated from God and we need to be reconciled to him. That is our biggest need. And this is what the cross does for us. It satisfies the wrath of God so that the people of God now receive his righteousness and are justified before him. And as 2 Peter reminds us, we are brought out of the darkness into the marvelous light. And there's importance for us there because it doesn't just stop for us, but this cross calls us to go back into this darkness with this marvelous light to fight and to expose the injustices and the oppression of this world. The Christian life isn't supposed to just end on us in that we are now saved and we can come to church and we can just live in this community and do nothing about what's going on. Ephesians 5 reminds us that we are supposed to take this light and expose the darkness that is around us. And so we are supposed to be compelled by the injustice that was placed on Christ on our behalf and to go into the injustice in this world and shine the light of the gospel. Romans 16, 20 says this. Flip there real quick. Because this, this ending of Paul's letter gives us a sense that those who have been reconciled back to God are now participating in acts in which they are defeating the works of the devil. He writes this, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He's talking to those who have been saved and reconciled back to God. He will crush Satan under your feet and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So this is our call, that from the cross, we are not only saved and justified in the sight of God, but then we are called with this light to go back into the darkness and to continue to share what God has done for us. And the resurrection, the resurrection shows us that going to dust is not the final word. This is what Lent is all about, right? Is helping us walk towards Easter, helping us prepare for what we see in the resurrection. But this is what Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 16, I'm sorry, 15. Starting in verse 48, he says this about the man of dust. And he connects our reality with what Christ has brought. 15, starting in verse 48. The verses should be up on the screen. He writes, As with the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must 
put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus our Lord. And he goes on to say, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That labor is what I just talked about, of going back into the darkness with this marvelous light, proclaiming that death no longer has victory because of what Christ has done on the cross and has resurrected from the grave, defeating sin and death on our behalf. And this is our call as believers, that the cross and the resurrection give us hope that we are saved and our sins have been covered, but gives us hope that God will continue to do what he says as we be obedient to the calling to go share this gospel in dark places. One day, sin and death will ultimately be defeated. And the resurrection of Jesus brings us hope both in the here and now and in the future. Tim Keller, writing on the here and now, says this, The message of the resurrection is that this world, this world matters. That the injustices and pains of this world must now be addressed with the news of the gospel. That healing, justice, and love have won in Christ and if Easter means Jesus Christ only raised in a spiritual sense, then it is only about me and you and finding a new dimension in my spiritual life. But if Jesus Christ is truly raised from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the entire world. Easter means that in a world where injustice, violence, and degradation are endemic, God is prepared to not tolerate these things and will work a plan out. And he, and he will use us. And with the energy of God, we will implement victory that Jesus has brought over these injustices. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ brings us hope for the here and now. But it also brings us hope for the future. You see, when Christ returns, Revelation 21 tells us this, that there will be no more injustices. There will be no more abuse. There will be no more pain or oppression or meaninglessness, but all will be made new. Now, we're going to sing a song in a moment. And it talks about this one day that we will experience in glory. And the chorus goes like this. Hallelujah, there will be healing from this heartbreak we've been feeling. And it goes on to say the light will come and there will be healing. And that healing comes from knowing that Christ has done all that we need to be reconciled, but it also shows us and gives us hope that when he returns, all things will be made new. And so we're going to sing this song during communion, and you guys can sit there, you can listen and receive what the words have to say, or you can get up and sing and praise what God will be doing in the future. 
But as we take communion, we're, we're not going to take it out as we normally do where we come together and I read 1 Corinthians 11. You guys can take it on your own. But what I want us to think about in communion is this, that this small meal, not even a meal, this small bread and juice is a glimpse of what will happen in glory when we are feasting with the Lord, when he has come back and made all things new. And we are rejoicing in this truth that there is no more pain, there is no more trial or shame or sin because Christ has returned. And so this meal points us to that eternal truth that is to come. And it's supposed to make us want more. It's supposed to make us long for that day like John writes in his epistles, where Jesus comes soon. And so as we take communion, I hope that you will see that this is but a glimpse of the eternal reality that's to come. And it reminds you that in the cross and in the resurrection, we have both hope here and now and for the future that Christ will make all things new and is making all things new. So let's pray and then we can receive this grace through communion. Lord, thank you for what your word says. Thank you that the cross and the resurrection don't leave us hopeless, but give us hope and joy that in your work, you are making all things new. And in this work, you use us to be a part of this this kingdom. Lord, I pray that we don't forget that. That in saving us and justifying us, Lord, we receive your righteousness. But Lord, it doesn't end with us. Lord, may we take this hope and this joy that we have received in you and, and bring it into the darkness that we shine the light of injustice and oppression in, in these dark spaces in hopes that you would bring new life, in hopes that you would make things new here on earth. Lord, as Jesus prays, Lord, we, we pray that this world would become like heaven. Here on earth as it is in heaven, Lord, we pray. And we ask that we would just get a glimpse of this in our lives. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Help us to rejoice in these truths. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at